welcome to the ABCA's podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Brownlee. Next up on the ABCA podcast is George Horton. This is the second installment of our ABCA Hall of Fame podcasts. Coach Horton is a 2021 Hall of Fame inductee. He's made a huge impact on the game personally and also with the people he's coached with in the game. He's one of the few people out there who can say he was on a coaching staff with Wally Kincaid, Dave Snow, and Augie Garrido. Coach Horton is a 38-year continuous ABCA member. He's the 2003 Baseball American National Coach of the Year. His 2004 Fullerton squad won the national championship and was an integral part of helping Augie Garrido build Fullerton into a powerhouse program as an assistant coach. He has 865 wins as a head coach. In his 11 years as the head coach at Cal State Fullerton, the Titans made the NCAA tournament every year and had six College World Series appearances. In 2007, he was hired to bring the baseball program back at the University of Oregon. He took a new program to five NCAA regionals and one super regional appearance in 11 years. Strap in for this episode with one of the best baseball minds in the game. Let's welcome Coach Horton to the podcast. Here with George Horton, coached at Fullerton, Cerritos, Los Angeles Community College, Oregon. Um, and I, this means a lot to me because I, I've always looked up to you as a coach. So it means a ton to me that you're on here with me right now. Oh, thanks, Ryan. Pleasure to be on with you. Yep. Just got inducted into the ABCA Hall of Fame. You're going in with the 2021 class. And this will be a series of, of all of our inductees. So this uh, should be a great resource for anybody listening in. Yeah, quite an honor to be inducted into that elite fraternity. All my heroes are there and... Uh, Boy, it gives me chills to just think about it. Obviously, we got a little hiccup in the timing with the COVID experience, but uh, and, and uh, that's why that's why I wanted to do this uh, because we aren't on site this year, and you guys will be able to to talk in 2022. I did want to pay tribute to everybody going in this year, uh, just as since we are going virtual, I wanted to record with everybody and release it before before 2022. Can you? Right. Can you talk about um, your path and then the mentors along the way? You've been around some great baseball people, so can you talk about your path and the mentors you've had along the way? Yeah, I've been uh, been really blessed. You know, I guess it all started out as a, a young uh, boy growing up next to a park, Real San Gabriel Park in Southern California, and uh, some of my uh, mentors and uh, idols, so to speak, my heroes were park managers that uh, used to keep us kids, all of us guys that used to play all the different sports and caroms and ping pong and all that, we try to keep us in line. But uh, those park managers were athletes from different colleges and, uh, you know, different sports. And, you know, I, I found myself gravitating to them and wanting to be like them. And, uh, you know, that was back in the 60s. So, uh, you know, some of my friends went in the wrong direction and chose the wrong path. And, and I kind of latched onto them and wanted to be like them and arguably was around one of the first travel baseball teams called the Downey Reds. That was a accumulation of UCLA and UC USC players at that local park. And uh, a guy named Ed Giddings actually paid me 50 cents a game to chase balls and corral bats. And uh, 
that's when I got the got hooked, so to speak, into baseball and wanted to be a, a, a college athlete, continue my education at a college and uh, kind of separated myself, like I said, from some of the bad choices some of my other friends chose as they were growing up through high school and they didn't go on to college. So uh, then, uh, you know, I was actually, I had as much passion to be a football player as I did a, a baseball player and I played two sports in high school and I was a, uh, as I like to say, a quarterback trapped in a lineman's body, uh, short and fat and slow, but I uh, had a, a kind of a quarterback's mentality and I doodle plays and grew up loving football. And I guess I was always the guy that uh, got to be quarterback and to tackle football games and that type of thing. And so I uh, leaving high school, I, I actually thought I was going to move on and play some football in college and junior college, Doritos junior college, uh, Ernie Johnson was a coach back then and he helped me get in school and I got into the uh, admission line and uh, started looking at some of the guys around me and I'm, you know, five, nine and guys, six, four, six, five. And hey, what do you play? Uh, you a lineman? And you know, I'm a wide receiver. So uh, I, I thought maybe I should choose baseball. And it was uh, arguably the greatest decision in my life and my uh, career path, so to speak, because uh, I, I, I got a hold of Wally Kincaid, who was the baseball coach at Cerritos College, and uh, got to play for him for two years. Uh, to this day, uh, I probably I think of him as a second dad. Uh, what, a, what a great opportunity to play for a, a man like him that was so far ahead of everybody else in Southern California as, as a coach at that time. Hey, and, what do you and, feel like, for people that are listening in, what do you feel like he was ahead of his time? with well i i think he was a copier he was a plagiarizer like a lot of us he he his idol was john wooden uh and had some great background in the military he was a navy man and some of his uh, uh coaches uh, had a great impact on him but uh he was uh, the consummate teacher uh his organizational skills were unparalleled uh, his success level at that time, uh, he, he was very dominant. Uh, went sixty and zero, and sixty and one, in, in two different years. I mean, he won sixty games in a row, and and went forty and zero, and forty and one in two two different years, and all the state championships that went with it. And uh, I found myself to be a sponge and and tried to pick his brain. And back then, uh, we even had a baseball class that he taught. It was a pro act class. And from soup to nuts, taught how you build a program, how you buy uniforms, the dimensions of a baseball field, all the details that a lot of us growing up playing the sport really don't know. I think if you asked uh, 35 guys on your roster, what's the distance from home plate to second base, uh, I would say less than half get it right. And, and where do you measure to? You know, And so how do you build a baseball field? How do you build a baseball stadium? Which obviously later in life uh, became very important to me. So, um, and I just, you know, embraced all the information that was coming from coach Kincaid and, and got to see his organizational skills. Boy, he was meticulous. He taught me that for every hour you spent on the field, you should spend two hours organizing that. And I think if you go back to a lot of the great coaches in any sport or any business CEO, uh, I think preparation is, is fundamental. And, and coach taught me that. And then he was very meticulous and very repetitious. And, and that's what the sport of baseball calls for. 
when did you realize you wanted to coach? Well, I didn't know. I wanted to be a dentist. Uh, I was a biology major through junior college. And, and when I moved on from Cerritos to Cal State Fullerton, I was still a biology major wanting to be a dentist. I, you know, I saw the writing on the wall. I wasn't going to play a day in the, the big leagues, uh, maybe not even a day in minor league baseball. And, and so I knew my college career was going to be the end of it. And, and unfortunately, I couldn't take the upper division um, biology labs because they were in the afternoon and we played baseball. We didn't have lights, so we played baseball in the afternoon and practiced. And so anyway, that uh, I, I got my degree in kinesiology uh, because of that. I was short on the bio biology major. And uh, then I thought I would try coaching one year with going back to Cerritos and trying it for one year to see if I liked it because – I had athletics in my background and I knew I wasn't going to ever get that out of there and love to be a leader and love to impose direction on young friends or colleagues or teammates or, uh, and thought I might, might like coaching and lo and behold, I went back and, uh, boy, I just fell in love with it. You know, not, not just the X's and O's, but, uh, the relationship part of it. I, I that's something you don't realize that, uh, you enjoy as much until you get into it. So it was a great opportunity that coach gave me and uh, spent 42 years doing it. What are some of the other things you picked up with him with, with coach Kincaid when you first got going? I mean, what, you talk about that transition. What were some eye-opening things for you? You go from playing to then coaching. What were some other things that you didn't realize as a player that you figure out pretty quick as a coach? Well, I'll tell you a quick story. This, this, Quick story has uh, stayed with me the, uh, my entire career. Uh, maybe at the end of my career, I made some compromises and wasn't quite as diligent as I should have been. And unfortunately, those compromises came back to bite me in, in the level of success that we didn't have, unfortunately. Uh, but it was my uh, one of my first practices out at Cerritos, and they were long practices. They were very detailed practices. And as I said, coach was very, very organized in the way he went about it. And, um, and so that uh, I, I had a part-time job at a wire rope factory after practice and, and it was uh, raising a, a, was married and raising a young family and so forth and so on, like everybody does. And, and so practice was over, the players had gone, say to coach Kincaid and the rest of the coach, okay, guys, we'll see you, see you tomorrow. And coach Kincaid in a very dry manner which he could do and communicate volumes with one sentence like nobody I've ever been around he says where are you going and I said well coach I got this job and he goes looks out on the field he goes see all those bats and balls and buckets out there he goes who do you think's going to pick those up and he looks at me and goes you you're never going to be a good coach and he was serious as all get out I said uh his message to me is the good coaches are going to do the dirty work, the heavy lifting, the cleanup, the organization, all that kind of stuff. And so I can't tell you how many times I've told that same story to young men that come into my office and say, coach, uh, do you think I have it in me to be a great coach? And it isn't the, you know, everybody wants to put on the signs and make the lineup out and hit the fungos and, you know, all that kind of stuff and jump up and down when the, the young men make you look good. Uh, but the difference maker is uh, whether or not you're willing to do the dirty work and the, the groundwork to, to, to make you get into positions to have very, uh, a lot of success. So, um, 
as only, as coach could do, he was a great communicator in a very simple, uh, dry way and didn't pull any punches. He was very consistent, very honest. And, uh, and so, you know, I know I'm getting ahead of myself, but, but the blessing to play for coach Kincaid play with Don Snedden, who's going to be inducted into the hall of fame with, with me in 21 or 22, whenever it happens, play for uh, Dave Snow and Augie Garrido, uh, and a guy named Gordy Douglas and be around people like that and and be smart enough to pull the positive things that I could use in my personality and discard the things that didn't fit into my personality were invaluable to me. And, and uh, I stole a lot of their their stuff along the way and tried to make it better. And hopefully at the end of the day, it was as good as, as what they did. When you got into coaching then, was your end all, did you see yourself being a Division One coach or were you okay with staying at the junior college level? I think it works great for, for different guys. Was was your ultimate goal to be a Division One baseball coach? Yeah, I, I think so. That's the highest level. Uh, you know, Cerritos was awfully good back then. Uh, you know, when I got my chance to be the head coach at Cerritos in 1985, uh, we had five big leaguers on that team. And I don't think there's a lot of JC teams out there that have had five big leaguers on one team. Or Division One teams. I thought, yeah. And I I said, uh, boy, I'm a great coach. You know, we won the state championship that year. And then guess what? All those guys moved on. And I wasn't quite as good a coach the next year because we didn't have the same talent base that we had in 1985. But, uh, uh, you know, I, 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 I thought it was the ultimate uh, from Cerritos, I went to coach three years at LA Valley Junior College with Dave Snow. What a blessing that was! You know, Dave had a, uh, was from Cerritos, played for Coach Kincaid, came from the same tree. We were he coached me at Cal State Fullerton when I moved on, and so we were on the same page. But he had a different personality as, uh, than Coach Kincaid, and he was as successful, in my opinion, as Coach Kincaid and many others, uh, and probably belongs in the Hall of Fame. And I got to, uh, I think Dave's uh, success or uh, his excellence was how players gravitated to him. Uh, he was a players coach. He was a detail coach. He was a hardworking coach, but he also liked to have a lot of fun. And so the players uh, knew his investment in them as people and in the program and, and what he got out of every player that he ever coached in his whole career was unbelievable and it was based a lot on his personality and the manner with which he coached and it was different than Wally Kincaid so I had two great examples right out of the gate of uh, how I wanted to be within my own personality and I would finish that story with I coached with a guy named Gordy Douglas who was a brilliant recruiter and a brilliant baseball guy but unfortunately his personality didn't fit great uh, with the young people and consequently he couldn't get out uh, what he, he should have with, with the players. And uh, unfortunately, Gordy was not as successful as he should have been because he, the players didn't gravitate to him and didn't engage with him. And, and I think that's a lesson for all of us out there. You got it. He, well, uh, Gordy Douglas played for Wally and he tried to be like Wally. Well, he wasn't like Wally, so it didn't work. It was oil, oil and water right from the start. And I learned not to try to be like somebody else uh, in that situation. How valuable is that to learn that as a young coach? Some coaches never get that experience. And, and going to coach with different guys, you do see that. You know, how valuable is that as a young coach? You get to pick that up. Well, I think that's one of the gifts. You know, 
the great ones as far as knowledge and passion. Um, they energize the entire program. They're passionate, all the things that you want from your players. Uh, there's some really great ones out there that uh, X's and O's wise are unbelievable, but they don't mesh with their, their they try to be something that they're not. Uh, there's certainly different factions and it's a dysfunctional family and all those type of things. I think one of the main uh, objectives, and it just kind of happened, I actually learned a little bit of this from Jerry Kindle back in the day, sitting in an ABCA uh, clinic that Jerry was conducting. And he had a little bit of a rule that, you know, certainly you got to get up somebody's rear end every once in a while and criticize them or yell at them or get, you know, what in this day and age with the millennials, give them a timeout or take their cell phone away or whatever you do. Uh, but uh, he had a rule that he passed along and I listened to that every bad thing that he said to a player, he tried to come up with five or six things in a positive manner to that player and try to reel them back in, so to speak, just like you would. I, I don't want to compare a player to a dog, but, you know, you spank a dog, he, he poops on the carpet, you rub his nose in it. Uh, and then, you know, after a little while, when he's not afraid of you anymore, he comes back and wants to be petted. Well, if you don't pet him, you're going to lose that relationship with your, your dog. Well, I think the same thing uh, with it, with your players that you, you need to be consistent. You need to be straightforward, need to be honest, you need to have fun. But also you need to catch them being good, as I like to say a lot of times. And that goes a long way. So I learned uh, that from Jerry and uh, Coach Snow was was really, really good at that and uh, would, consequently would get a lot out of his players. With Coach Garrido then, job opens up on the staff at Fullerton. How Did you reach out to him? Did he reach out to you? How did that play out? Well, I was uh, a full-time teacher, tenured. Uh, we were having a lot of success at Cerritos. Again, I was the head coach at that time. We had won three out of the six state championships, so we had it rocking and rolling pretty well. And and, uh, you know, I played Froggy, and I, I knew that he was quite a salesman. Um, you know, when he recruited me, or he didn't recruit me, I kind of recruited myself. He recruited all my teammates from Cerritos, but I went to Hawaii and didn't like it. So I bounced back and asked him if I could be part of the team. And it wasn't uh, Coach Garrido, it was Coach Snow uh, that said, yeah, you can be a part of it. But Back then, the joke is that Augie said we were going to have a new stadium, and that was 1973. Um, 25 years later, we got a new stadium, and so he, you know, he wasn't lying about that or fudging about that or using it as a recruiting thing. It actually came to fruition, uh, and so. Uh, I know, love telling our guys when I was at Western Illinois, we didn't have a lot, but I loved show. I showed them the article when Fullerton won the first national championship and guys were dressing in their cars before games. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't until uh, I won it in 2004 as the head coach that we actually had a locker room. Uh, we, and, and all those uh, routes to the college world series were on the road. And we all know how tough it is to win those six-team regionals on the road in those uh, traditionally great environments. Oklahoma State, Florida State, Texas, those kind of places are hard to battle your way out of that. Back in the day, it was Fresno. It was West Coast. And they were very good. And, and so Augie accomplished that uh, with basically uh, not even great high school facilities, so to speak. 
when I think of Fullerton, a lot of things, but always playing a tough schedule. Was that part of Augie's stance back then is, hey, we're going to go on the road and play a really hard schedule because it's going to help us then in, in regional play? Yeah, and uh, that served us well as toughing us up, knowing that we can compete nationally with those type of programs. And at the end of the year, when we were forced to do that, uh, we were comf- more, more comfortable uh, being comfortable when you're uncomfortable, as Ken Revisa would say. And, uh, and also, they, were all, uh, they put us in the national perspective, so to speak, where uh, back in the PCAA or uh, the Big West, uh, you'd have to have those uh, significant series wins to climb the, the rating and be, nas- be a national seed or what have you when they started doing things like that. But, uh, yeah, those were uh, good for the committee to look at. Uh, you know, Augie and I's very first year in 91 when he recruited me to come over and said he would coach two or three more years and then the program could be yours, George. He only went 26 more years after that. Um and, and, and I, I knew that. I, I, I feel good that I elongated his career if I helped him do some of the crummy stuff that we talked about early so Augie could enjoy uh, that period of his career where he was at, he thought he was at the twilight of his career. And then we took a lot of the heavy lifting stuff off his plate and allowed him to, to recharge the battery, so to speak. And and he coached 26 more years. So, what were your biggest adjustments then, going from coaching at junior college to then coaching Division One? Well, you know, it, it was funny. Um, again, I used some of the same principles. Organization. I was that lieutenant that could do that for Augie. That uh, Augie was uh, a great guy to put the polish on the diamond, so to speak. A great motivator. Uh, a great teacher. Well, you have to have those different personalities on your staff, don't you think? You can't have – not everybody can be the exact same personality on your staff. Oh, absolutely. Rick Vanderhoek was part of that staff. A guy named Joe Martelli, Mike Kirby, still coaching, was part of that staff. And so we had the good cop, the bad cop. I was the the grinder, so to speak. I was the organizer. Uh, I was the corrector. And, hey, we, we need to do this a little bit better. And, I would say Augie was a real positive guy and catch guys being good and a real motivator. And Make no mistake about it, if the line was drawn in the sand and you cross that line, that's the inning-by-inning inning tirades that we've seen. And if you're not doing it right, and, and that's real stuff. But yes. most of the time, Augie was a very, very positive guy. And then Rick Vanderhoek was grumpy all the time, just like he is now. And uh, he, he, was, uh, he and I were more of that on that end of the spectrum and, and Joe and Augie were more on the other end of the spectrum. And I think it was a great staff because of that. I think the players enjoyed that. And so uh, what I found was uh, junior college baseball at that time and junior college coaches with the likes of uh, Mike Gillespie coaching at Canyons and uh, before he moved on to SC and uh, uh, Jim O'Brien and uh, uh Andy Lopez was at Dominguez Hills at that time. And so I found that once I got into it. You build that thing at Fullerton. Was there then internal pressure every year, expectations of going to Omaha every year? Was there internal pressure or was that just the expectation with Fullerton's program? It was internal. We weren't getting a lot of that from the, the administration. I think anything that we accomplished was uh, 
amazing. You know, what Augie did to build that. Uh, I mean, we had a $6,000 budget. He tells the story that the AD, Neil Stoner, who's become a friend of mine, and uh, he came comes into the office after we were Division II in 1974. And I was redshirting because I had bounced back from Hawaii. So I was actually like an assistant coach, picking pitches and coaching third on the 74 team. And Augie tells the story that Neil came into his office as I got good news and bad news. Which do you want first? He said, well, give me the good news first. He says, the good news is you're going division one next year. And he, what's the bad news? He says, you're, I'm only going to increase your budget by a thousand dollars. It's now $6,000 instead of 5,000. And that was the truth. You know, we, we did, we didn't have a, a locker room. We didn't have restrooms. We didn't have a snack bar. We didn't have a bus to take. We took vans and guess what? We didn't care. You know, Augie made it feel like we didn't need, we had everything because we had him and we had each other and we had a great coaching staff. We didn't need all those bells and whistles and, and things. And fast forward many, many years later when I went to Oregon and had everything, but we didn't have the nuts and bolts, unfortunately. And it took us a few years to get that going. So, um, when, when did the indoor, when did the, the, the suites there get built at Fullerton that overlooked baseball and softball? 2000. That was the year 2000 was the first year that we hosted a regional. In fact, in 99, we were a national seed and they sent us, that was the first year of national seeds. John Easterbrook, my athletic director was on the committee and they sent us to Notre Dame which it made no sense because we were a national seed. We win that regional and we're sure we're going to host the super regional. And then they sent us to Ohio state. I was uh, adamant uh, against the committee of what happened. I thought the national seed. anyway, long story short, we were able to make our way to Omaha in 1999. And then they expanded Goodwin field, um, uh, and, uh, 2000 to where we could host a regional and seat 3,500 people. That was the first hosting opportunity. Unfortunately, we didn't make it out of there. Uh, Coach Gillespie's USC team came in there and, and won that regional. You've been on the West Coast for a long time. How many good teams each year get passed up in the regional selection? That's a lot, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, and it's not getting any better, you know, because it just uh, seems like the West Coast teams beat each other up with scheduling. Yeah, the RPI formula works against us because of, we play cousins. We don't bring in uh, outside people from different regions. We don't have that guaranteed money, Big West and others. That we, we did that some at Oregon because we had those resources. But you kind of had to make your own bet. If you didn't win, boy, you were subject to uh, being left out. And, you know, 91 was a great – I started to tell that story – when Augie and I first went to, we were co-champs with Fresno State in the PCAA. We had just swept a number five rated Long Beach State team two weeks before selection. And we and we were awful in the preseason because we, we were brand new back to the program. Phil Nevin was on that team. And that same team played for the national championship the next year in 92. But guess what? We didn't get invited to the dance in 91 with essentially maybe a better team but it was the same team. And because we made our bed, so to speak, in a negative way, they leapfrogged us. They took Fresno as the automatic because they beat us two out of three and they passed up a co-champ and took Long Beach State. And we're sitting in front of the TV going, really? 
And so that team, the next year, the team played with a little bit of a chip on their shoulder. And there's other great examples, Oregon State uh, uh, coming in six in the pack and barely making it. Fresno State, the year they won it. They were the last team in the tournament in the field that year when Fresno State won it. Certainly the West doesn't make us any better than the rest out there, some of which uh, don't get invited to the dance that are very deserving. But I, I, like you said, each and every year, there's some real battle-tested, good teams that nobody wants to play in a regional. And unfortunately, we used to always complain because we you look at a Cal State regional when I was there, and there's three teams in the top 25 in one regional, you know, and it because that's what they call it regional, you know, it was it was financial based, and as the years went along, more and more money was being made, and 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 so they deregionalized some of it and made some of those West Coast regionals a little fairer and balanced it out throughout the country. But it was a work in progress. Those boy, those Western regionals in the uh, in the 80s and 90s were well, barn busters uh, just because of the level of competition. I think TV has probably helped a little bit. We have a lot more regular season games on television now than what we've ever had. So you, you're able to watch more teams throughout the, the country because we have more TV games now. Yeah, and I think some of the West Coast uh, athletic departments are investing more and they're allowing teams to travel and, and allowing – guarantees to bring teams into the better weather early in the year where you get to play those teams without it being a Cal State Fullerton. I mean, uh, you know, each and every year we used to play Texas when Gustafson was there and Augie was at Cal State Fullerton because of relationship and uh, boy, that was a great series and, you know, a traditional program like Texas, but not every mid-major, you know, we weren't a mid-major, but, you know, uh, some of the wannabe West Coast teams, had to work like the Dickens to get invited to play in a place like Texas. And so it was an honor for us to be able to go there and prove our worth, so to speak. And, and it paid off, you know, in, in a big way. And uh, we, it was a David and Goliath thing. I've talked about that a lot, the program at Fullerton and what Augie was able to accomplish in this very first year of, of division one, going to the college world series and, and with a $6,000 budget, how he built an empire, it's certainly a David versus Goliath type uh, uh, battle, and and we won a lot of those, and, and we embraced that. We we loved the David uh, personality, and and you go to Omaha, and they didn't ha- even have our hats, you know, because we weren't licensed like the other ones. <laughs> what were the biggest challenges? You take the Oregon job. Um, what were your biggest challenges? Some of the eye-opening things. You're starting a program. They had had baseball, but then they bring it back. What were some of the eye-opening things for you with, with trying to start a program? Well, that first year was difficult. Uh, you know, I uh, coached Jason Gill uh, was my first hire, along with uh, Andrew Chackets. And so, uh, you know, we were building a stadium. I was trying to find a home. We didn't have a ball, a bat, a, a mitt. Uh, we didn't. We didn't even know where the stadium was going to be when I first got hired. And those guys were on the road trying to recruit uh, a full team, you know, and from Florida all, you know, to the Northeast to the Northwest, everywhere. And uh, and I was stuck in the being a, the guy that was in all those meetings you don't want to be in, you know, the ordering uh, jock straps and polo shirts and baseballs and bulletin boards and all those kind of things and building a stadium. That was fun, you know, uh, feeling like you got an unlimited budget. What do you want coach? And, 
But guess what? I didn't have anybody to talk to. So I didn't have the relationship of players or assistant coaches. And as I like to say, I used to go home and yell at my wife for missing the cutoff, man, or not getting the butt down, you know, and I just needed that release. So that was a difficult year. And then uh, I thought that was the most difficult year I ever been through in coaching. And then, and then we had our first year where we jumped right into the fire and we were in the PAC 12 battle and division one battle. And with the first year team with a bunch of, kids from all over the place you know and uh with that roster did you have what was the mix of high school and junior college transfers on that first roster at Oregon yeah we tried to make it 50 50 you know because we knew that we were probably not going to get nationally prominent players uh because everybody else was going to have the pickings uh across the board so uh, we needed some experience, some guys that had played at the college level. So that was, there was a big influx of JC players. And then we wanted them to mentor and grow and maybe be a little bit competitive. And then now they move on and some of our youngsters become juniors. And as the freshman recruits come in and kind of building it, building block by building block. And uh, some of the misses were the fact that so many people out there thought it would be really easy to play at Oregon because we were brand new. Uh, and they came for the stuff, not the substance, except for the fact that the credibility of my staff and myself, and we kind of knew the, the, uh, the way to teach how to get to Omaha and be successful. Uh, and, you know, we had it going on pretty good with guys moving on to uh, professional baseball at Cal State Fulton as well. So my reputation was pretty good. The stadium was unbelievable. The the commitment from Nike and all the, the, the brand and the, uh, all the stuff that they got at the University of Oregon and continue to the, the student athlete experience is unparalleled there. Um, there was a lot of things to sell, you know, and so unfortunately we didn't get the same kind of player that we got at Fullerton because at Fullerton you came to be a ball player and maybe get your degree. Unfortunately, I hate to say that, but we had some ball players there that they didn't come because of the locker room. They came because they wanted to go to the college world series and they wanted to play uh, professional baseball. So, uh, you know, we had a mixed uh, level of passion in our program early and had, had tried to establish the culture and try to get it leaning towards the great culture that we had at Cal state Florida. And then they still have there. You've coached a lot of big leaguers. What's the separator between the players that make it and the ones that don't? Uh, right here in your chest and right here in your mind. I mean, at that level, anybody that gets drafted has an opportunity. Some of my longest tenured players in the, in the big leagues were guys that actually redshirted uh, their first year at Cal State Florida. And that's how good we were, first of all. A guy like Reed Johnson that uh, redshirted his first year and made himself into the kind of player that he became and, and consequently, he stayed up in the big leagues because he was so mentally tough and had such a big heart and passionate that uh, we had a lot of guys. Hey, like I think that. the Cubs Justin screwed Turner. up that year. He he played down the stretch for the Cubs and they made the playoffs. They were scratching to get in, and then that series against the Dodgers, they didn't play him, and they got they got boat raced by the Dodgers. And I, I think it's because they didn't play him. He was like the heart and soul of that team down the stretch with the Cubs. Yeah. Well, you look at Justin Turner and Kurt Suzuki, two of my guys from my 2004 team. Well, nobody knows Justin Turner was a bat boy at Cal State Florida. So my, he, he was so passionate about the game of baseball and uh, 
he's become <laughs> the kind of player that I never thought he would become in Major League Baseball because he wasn't even like that in college. But what a tremendous program maker Justin Turner was. And Kurt Suzuki, his passion for energy and excellence and hard work, he actually called me the first year out of being in pro ball. He's in the Cal League. And he said, Coach, what do I do? I have a manager that's criticizing me because I'm so energized during games and so rah rah. He says, "Hey, that college shit ain't gonna work here, son." And and I said to Kurt, I said, "You know what? Shake your head to that guy, but don't ever lose one ounce of that passion and that energy." And and, and you know he's still playing and he still has a lot of energy behind the plate and uh, he's he's such a passionate guy. And his his bookend guy, PJ Pilateri, who's the assistant hitting coach of the Yankees right now was the same kind of guy. I, you know, I have all those guys that played in the big leagues from that 04 team, but those two guys and Justin Turner were, were the three leaders of that particular ball club and they made us go. I, I used Suzuki a lot with the players because Brian Kane had good video of, you know, the, the first go around in Omaha, he doesn't play very well. And then yeah, he's the MVP of the World Series, and he shows his breathing routine and how much better his breathing routine than was the second go-around. And how much of that was was experience for guys? You make it to Omaha, and then that second go-around, you've been there, and it's a little bit easier because you've been there before. Yeah, it is, but I would tell you the story. Jason Windsor, our horse, we played, we played in the College World Series. We were actually in the driver's seat with Jason pitching uh, – in the bracket and he's pitching at Stanford. And this is back in the uh, uh, AIDS awareness, blood. You can't have blood. He had to come out of the game. And unfortunately Windsor's pitching and he had pronated on his change and cut his thumb. And he's out there in the seventh inning with a low pitch count. We're beating Stanford. And because his thumb was bleeding and getting blood on the ball, they made me take him out of the game in 2003. Uh, I like to say, arguably, if we didn't have to do that, we might win that game and we could have won maybe back-to-back national championships. So, but my point is Jason pitched in 03 in the College World Series. In 04, he was our horse. He won two games there and, and pitched in relief. Um, he, he, in his first outing in 04, after being there the year before, came out, out the field after the first inning, said I couldn't even breathe the whole first inning and scuffled a little bit, you know, and here's a guy that had been through it and he couldn't even breathe. So that's the way coaches get in the College World Series. And guess what? Umpires get like that too. They can't even talk to you and don't play, you know. And so, but your point's well taken. You know, a team that's traditional has been there, a coach that's been there and all the distractions – that they, you know, they, you got to be at the autograph signing thing, the fireworks show, you know, there's a lot of things that are, are not all year long distractions you have to deal with and cameras right in your face and so forth and so on. And uh, I use the term again, Revisa, who we hired, he was a professor at Cal State Fullerton and I used him at Oregon too, taught you some tools to how to deal with being uncomfortable because you were going to be uncomfortable. There's no question about it. And the, and the, the key was to be comfortable being uncomfortable. Those teams that won the national championship, when did you think you were going to win the national championship? After the final outs recorded? Yeah, pretty much. And, and you know, in, in 95, when the ball went up and uh, 
Tony Miranda caught it in left field when Katze was pitching, and I was the associate head coach. And in 04, when it went up off uh, in the air and it was coming down, and Bobby Andrews was going to catch it, I realized it. And more so in 04, that particular group had done such a great job of buying in to the Revisa plan of pitch by pitch. And that was really when it was coming to its heightened awareness and, and playing next pitch and the whole breathing and trying to keep all the results out of it and process, process, process. Well, we talk about, you know, that whole mental game starts out of being a, a book. Then it starts out, you know, in the, in the first game of the year, and then hopefully you get it down to a, a chapter and then you get it down to a page. Then you get it down to a paragraph. Then you get it down to a sentence and a word and then a letter. And if you can get it to the letter and all your guys can be on the letter as a process and not results, you got something. And out of all the games that I ever played in my entire life, that championship game where the ball was coming down to Bobby Andrews and I'm competing against Augie Garrido and the great Texas program uh, and my mentor, uh, I'd never experienced that feeling in a dugout where we really got results out of there. And Ken, for the first time, Ken Revisa had traveled with us to the College World Series. So he, he deserves all the credit of getting our, our, all of our minds in the right place and getting the results out of it. And on our ring uh, are the words next pitch because that played such a huge role in that particular team who had come back from being 15 and 16 and flailing away uh, at, at taking this talented team and not having success where we finally got Ken involved and got it back to where we were on a sentence or a word and heading towards that letter, that's when that team turned it around and became a national championship type team. So you're 15 and 16. Is there one team meeting that sticks out? You have Ken come in. I mean, what's the turning point at 15 and 16? Cause that team was, was ultra talented. What's the turning point there? Turning point was Ken coming back on board. We had used him before, you know, shame on me. I thought, well, he's getting expensive. He's charging an awful lot of money because he was working with the Cubs and the Angels and all this. Anyway, well, you can't give that stuff for free. That's gold. Yeah, I mean, that, yeah, God bless him. He started you, you, $2,000 a day at Cal State Fullerton. You know, we didn't have that kind of money. So uh, I said, I, you know, I, I had educated myself and I, I knew all his. Well, it was the E60 with him and Evan Longoria too. That that probably did a lot to to allow him to start asking for a little bit more as well. Oh yeah. He, uh, anyway, I, God bless him. Yep. What a man. He taught. He he changed the game. He did. He he changed the game of baseball. He changed a lot of personalities. He gave us tools also to take tests and to do jobs. Mental health. You know, it's a mental health issue too. That he he's he's he helped solve some mental health issues as well. Absolutely. You know, relationships with your wife or, you know, whatever, and being able to deal with uh, adversity and all kinds of stuff. I have uh, great admiration for him and what he taught us and, and so forth. So, what, are you, what are your big, biggest differences right now in coaching than when you first got into it? Um, well, the rules are different. Uh, you, you, you know, a lot of people are getting fired for doing things that uh, were borderline unethical that I used to do. And guys learned from me, quite frankly, you know, running them. And, you know, thank goodness uh, I'm blessed that I never injured anybody or, uh, 
I don't think I impose too much psychological pain on somebody by criticizing them or demands. I think I was pretty consistent. And uh, I guess my form of punishment and rewards, I think, had to change along the way for safety reasons. And you, know, you couldn't get them up in the morning and do dawn patrol if they're not in shape. I know, but I was a better player because of it. I mean, my dad was that way. I I felt like I was more accountable and I'm probably in this chair right now because how I was treated as a, you know, you can't do it now, but I don't think I'm sitting in this chair right now if I didn't have the type of coaches that I had growing up. Well, and I agree with you, you know, there's a line that you can't cross. But that discipline, you know, I often say, you know, what is what is a drill sergeant or the people that are protecting us, the Navy SEALs, are doing that they're training. They're they're not giving them timeouts. They're not not asking them please and thank you. That doesn't make it when you're you're fighting for your life. And baseball is not fighting for your life. But I'm I'm like you, you know, my uh, generation and and most of the guys I I coach for years and years actually wanted me to push it more like how I used to coach them, you know, the 6 a.m. weight training, the, the fitness test, the, uh, the get on the line. You know, I had a reputation that if they, you know, just similar to Augie, that, you know, it was a fist flight and your, your jaw's going to get wired shut if you don't get in the fight, uh, that you, you get on the line. If you deserve to be spanked, you get spanked. And sometimes the spanking was a, was a running penalty, you know, and sometimes it was a pat on the butt, but there was a different level of discipline and, and there's still guys out there, you know, you, you got to find them and you got to create that culture. And what I try, try to find, and, you know, in my personality, what could I do with the Gen Z and the millennials to motivate them, you know, and uh, because Everybody, you hope you recruit all those guys that are passionate like that, that uh, they want to outwork their opposition in the classroom. They want to work them outwork them off the field. And you want them to outwork them on the field. But guess what? You got some of those guys that are fence riders and they're only going to go the way they want to go. How do you get them off the edge of the fence and get them onto the good side of the fence? I don't have all the answers to that. Did you? What were some of the tips, tools you used to help those guys on the fence? Because I mean, I'm sure you had some guys that you were able to sway to your side. What were some of the things that you'd use with those guys to help? Well, the bench is a big motivator. You know, I think that came out of John Wooden's mouth a long, long time ago. And uh, you know, you hope that if you take the opportunity away from them, it hurts them as much as running them. Uh, you know, so if I found some guys that were, didn't show up, weren't present at practice, were distracting from practice, uh, they got eliminated from practice and they'd have to earn their way back on there. You know, I, that's one of the things I learned from Coach Kincaid. He, he had a reputation and he, he bragged about the fact that he never cut anybody. We'd start out with 80 guys and he, he would never cut anybody. And I said, Coach, you know, we'd always start out with 80 guys. And, well, what he would do is he wouldn't put you on the practice plan. So you'd come and you'd look and you're George Horton, a marginal player, or you didn't practice hard the day before you go to look at practice and you're not up there. You're like, you go running over to coach, Hey coach, you forgot me on the practice when he goes, I didn't forget you. That's all he said to you and walked away. Well, guess what? You had to on your own time, earn your way back for the right to put the uniform on to practice on the field, to put the Falcon uniform on and, 
and and that was a privilege you know it, it wasn't a right that you had to to you, it was a privilege to practice each and every day so you know you had that taken away from yelling and screaming at them but you know that, that doesn't go very far in this this day and age so taking taking away the opportunity i guess would be the number one thing I would use Wooden as an example, but also it's much harder on a baseball coach because if, if you yank a guy, he's not going back in. In basketball, you put a guy on the bench for a little bit, he can sit there, but you can you can re-enter that guy. That's the hard thing with baseball and, and some of those adjustments is if you pull a guy, like you got to be invested in pulling a guy because he's not going back in. Yeah, I, I learned my very last year at Cerritos Junior College where we were winning at the highest level. I actually looked the other way. I was an immature, wanting to win, winning at all costs kind of coach. And my star center fielder that had uh, five tools, he just didn't have the six tool. Up here, he was a dim bat, but he, boy, he was talented. And we're playing in a, a regional uh, against Rio Hondo. And uh, guess what? He shows up late uh, for report time. And so I looked the other way because we needed him to play center field. Unfortunately, we lost the game by one run. He cost us by misplaying a ball in center field. You know, I, to this day, I think the game, the game knows me. the game, knows. the game actually knows. So uh, the good coaches are experienced enough where you, you know, your job's on the line, which makes it tough. You know, you have to feed your families and, and so forth and so on, but we are educators. So if a guy's not doing what you ask him to do, then he doesn't get the, he doesn't deserve to play in the game. And you're right. It's harder to do in our sport because if you pull a guy out for not running a ball out or not knowing the outs or whatever, guess what? He doesn't get to go back in the game and it might cost you a game or two along the way, but in the long run, your culture is going to be served so much better uh, from that reputation. You might've done something like that five years ago, but guess what? That gets passed from generation to generation. And they know that when you say something, you're going to back it up. You know, you're not going to say something and then let everybody do what they want to do anyway. What are some of the similarities with now and then when you first started? Uh, so much different. Uh, you know, I, I started out, we were swinging wood bats and uh, there was no internet and games weren't on TV. And, uh, you know, I, I, I still think, you know, what I love and miss about it is the camaraderie, uh, the relationship, how, you know, it's a, an offshoot of a family structure. Baseball is a lot like life and family that uh, the family unit needs to feed off each other and help each other and so forth. And you're, you're only as good as your the worst person on your family and the weak link on your, your baseball team. And I, I think the fact that baseball is a sport that you can do everything perfectly right in the batter's box and still go for four, it's a frustrating game. And but guess what? Just like life, you got to get back up and knock on that door the next day if you're a salesman or go back to work and see if you can nail it. And, and so that those are the things that I think baseball still provides for the opportunity to play it. Uh, and then also, uh, you know, like you're a success and what you do. I feel like I've done uh, pretty good things in the sport of baseball to create that discipline for whatever you go into that's why so many people are knocking on your door when you're coaching in my door saying, Hey, you know, I have this company. I want to hire your ex players because they know that if they went through your program and culture, they're made of the right stuff to be successful in a different environment as well. 
What do you feel like makes a great assistant coach for a head coach? Um, I'm going to start with loyalty. Uh, you know, you don't want a bunch of yes guys around you. We talked about diversity within a, a coaching staff before. I talked about Rick Vanderhoek, Dave Serrano, Chad Baum, Ted Silva, Jason Gill, coaches that have been at some of the best Joe coaches Kern. in the game. Well, thank you. you it know, is. And I, I think it I is. step back. And my legacy now is that, that I've got a lot of guys out there coaching, you know, on the West Coast, especially. And uh, Bryant Ward at UCLA is doing a tremendous job. And, and anyway, you get into your meetings and you want, you know, you, you want to have it out, so to speak. You want differences of opinion. You don't want everybody going, yes, coach, yes, coach, yes, coach. All my coaches were always really good at that. They were always respectful, but we would have knock down, drag out battles in there, how we wanted to do it. And then I think that's one of the things that people that aren't in it, that, that haven't coached at the college level, don't understand how heated some of those coaches' meetings can be because you never see that. You know, with the good staffs, you never see that on the outside. But there, right. there's going to be those knockdown drag-out meetings with, with player personnel, recruiting, uh, just anything. There's going to be some of those knockdown drag-out meetings. Yeah, you just don't want it to be in the dugout where all the players are looking and, you know, those can kind of end okay because you're battling or whatever. It's just like yelling at an umpire. Oh, coach must care because he's yelling at an umpire. That doesn't always isn't always a great barometer for how much you care. You know that's not the process that's going to help you win. And so, but the loyalty when you walk out of that office, that whatever you walk out with, that's what's going to be conveyed to the players. And the head coach is always right. That's what makes a good assistant coach. And and I've had you know I was. Last year with COVID and the whole Altabelli situation and the Orange Coast College, I was asked to go help that program because of my relationship with JJ's son and some coaches there. Uh, when I went back there, I realized that's what I missed, you know, the colleagues, the coaches. And, and it was a young head coach, and he was doing some things that I wouldn't have done. And heck, guess what? I hadn't been an assistant coach for 30 years. Uh, so I was biting my lip a lot going, Oh man, but a good assistant is loyal and he backs up the head coach and he, he echoes that same thing. And, and I, you know, I think, uh, I said it earlier. I, I hope that I elongated Augie Garrido's career because I did some of the crummy stuff. There's a lot of guys that I got credit for a lot of wins and the hall of fame and the rings and the championships that I won as the head coach my assistant coaches deserve just as much credit as you know, uh, because without them, who knows what, how we would have been, you know, I'm only one guy instead of four guys. I think a great assistant makes the head coach's job easier. That, absolutely. Uh, and you know, so spoiled at Oregon with managers and equipment guy, you know, we had a, a guy for everything, you know, and almost to a fault. Sometimes that spreads thing, too many voices, too many people in their lives where we didn't have as much at Fullerton. There was four of us and an equipment guy and a trainer, you know, it was a pretty, there's some about having to do some of that stuff to show that you're invested in the program. Yeah. I mean, even when we had a turf field and everything at Oregon, my guy still worked on the field. You know, I think that they have to pay the penalty, the price, part of it is conditioning and the, the sacrifices you make with uh, social choices and different things like that. You guess, you know, you get a lot of rewards being an athlete, 
But guess what? There's a different set of responsibility. You can't behave like the knuckleheads in the frat or the, in the, in the sorority sometimes, you know. Once you decide to put the uniform on, you, those other things go away. And there's nothing wrong with being a regular college student. You can go be a regular college student. But once you make that decision to actually be a college athlete, then there's some other things that, that come with that as well. Absolutely. You know, some, you know, even some things that are legal, you know, with now, nowadays. But guess what? Federally, they're not legal. And so, you know, you have drug testing and that confusion of it in uh, I don't know how many states now where where pot is legal. Uh, but guess what? You can't do it exactly. because you're an athlete. You know, everybody else is doing it, but you can't be doing that kind of stuff. And those kind of sacrifices. Um, proud of my guys for in most cases making those sacrifices what recommendations do you have for parents or youth players that are listening in right now for their youth teams anything anything i mean you've been around it forever you see you see what's going on right now what are some things that are going to help youth players or parents right now well it's, it's sure commercialized you know, I get a lot of those questions, coach, how many of these showcases do I need to go to and what gives me the best opportunity to market my son or daughter um, to get in a scholarship and so many parents, especially, you know, in areas that I live in, I live in Yorba Linda now where uh, the, the, the parents here have resources. And so they've got a hitting coach and a pitching coach and a fielding coach and a da 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 And, you know, I, I think um, allowing the kids to be kids uh, and be more of the parent that is there when they want you to be there. But certainly, you know, if you're going to put them in a coaching, uh, a team environment or uh, give them lessons and paying that money, then let those coaches do their job, you know, and don't be that guy that's yelling from the stands and get your elbow up and point your toe here and this and that. Let, let the coaches coach and let the players play and be there if they need it. But, you know, a, a lot of the guys that I've coached have actually sons of guys that play. So they know a lot. And, you know, when do you, when there's, there's a, a quote, there can be too many cooks in the recipe, so to speak. And you got dad in one ear and the coach in one ear. And anyway, uh, and I don't, you know, I don't think they need to go to every single showcase, you know, and certainly have a plan and when do they need to shut it down when they need to be the adult when it comes to arm care. And, and it, there's so many things on the internet now where you don't have to be a guy that played or a mom that played. You can learn a great deal from the internet now of what overuse is and, and how to prevent that and, just what are some resources? We talked about Ken Revizzo. What are some other resources where you would point somebody to be like, okay, if you're trying to dive in a little bit, this would be a good place to start? Well, there's a lot of mental tapes out there. Brian, you mentioned Brian Kane and all the great ones out there. Uh, the problem is that everybody with a phone and a Twitter account thinks they are the experts and here's how to throw a ball, here's how to swing. You know, this whole metric thing about launch angle and exit speed up. I think that's destroying some swings now. Because well, it's the, the new mechanics. Yeah, everybody focused on mechanics, or I got to watch my video. Well, now it's it's the metrics, and you still have to be able to separate what's going to help you on the field and what isn't. And sometimes players are using that now as an excuse that what am I? You know, every swing or every throw, what are my metrics instead of actually trying to figure out 
what's going to help you and what's going to allow you to feel what you're doing as well. Yeah, exactly. And the great, to me, the great coaches have that ability to not show you necessarily always on video. That's great. That's a great learning environment. And the measurements are always, but you know, do you need a, a metric to see that the ball went off the bat really fast and sounded different? And boy, that arm, your guy's arm goes through there really quick. And, you know, Eddie Bain had a quote that he, he said, I threw just as hard as anybody out there. It just didn't go as fast, you know, and, and those type of things. So, <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, I mentioned John Altabella and he was good. There was a tape about him. He goes, I don't need all that stuff and rap soto and all that. I can tell whether a guy can hit the ball in the gap or not or run down and catch it or not, you know. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's a good learning tool, but uh, I, I heard A.J. Hinch in an interview with, Aaron Boone, Cora, and him, and they were talking about metrics. And of course, Hinch was besides the the dirty they stuff. St they still did. won, though. I mean, I, you know, besides all the, they still won a championship. I mean, yeah. Uh, and AJ's one of my favorite guys I've competed against over the years when he was at Stanford. Very brilliant young man. Um, and the and the commentator asked the three of them how did they, how they incorporate in all the metrics and analytics and different things like that i thought aj had a really for a young guy it's, this sounded like an old coach he said you know you still have to match what you see with what you know and so there's always that feel and that eyesight of the old coach it's been around versus the young uh, geeks i i would say well you can't guys. discount the fact of how many games that you've watched and how many players you've seen because you have a, a long history or any of us that have watched a lot of games have a long history of of seeing a guy that maybe looked like somebody else you know guy reminded you of mark kotze you know or all the guys you coached along that were good players where those guys do stick out and and you know imprinting's an actual thing but guys do stick out that that look like somebody else yeah, again, what, one of the blessings when I was eight years old at that park and watching guys like Anthony Davis play baseball, yeah. I want to I want a guy that can run that fast and hit that far, you know, that that kind of thing. And what it looks like in my brain was able to select before all the videos and the metrics was able to select people like that. And then, you know, what adjustments does that guy make? That isn't in a book. And if you pick your five favorite hitters right now, they're not all cookie cutter guys. They're not all the same stance, open, close, where they have their hands. Do they choke up like bonds and still same thing on run? the mound too? They're they're different. Yeah. You you pick five guys, they're going to have some similarities, but there's going to be differences too. Yeah, and so that you know, I can break down tape too in slow motion, but I also know that you don't want to coach athleticism out of a guy and change his mechanics to where he becomes very segmented in whatever he does, whether it's throwing a ball or hitting a ball. Do you have any fail forward moments? Do you have something along the path, your coaching journey that you thought was going to sidetrack you, but might've been the best thing that ever happened to you? Uh, you know, I, I, I think anytime we came up short or I felt like I, uh, I didn't bring to the team enough for them to reach their potential was a motivating factor for the very next year. And so if you look at the way my career started out, I said we had five big leaguers. I thought I was a great coach. We won the state championship against College of the Canyons. Mike Gillespie, who I think, uh, you know, Hall of Fame coach, great coach, you know, the pinnacle. And, and, and then all of a sudden those guys left and 
and I felt like I did a poor job in 86 the very next year. And so we won a state championship every other year. You know, was that because it was a freshman class and then they moved on? Or I think a lot of it was uh, the motivation from the coach and uh, the journey. And I was a little bit more on top of things because of that failed moment moving forward. How did that allow you to then be consistent every year after that? Because maybe you don't take it for granted as much that we're going to be that good every year. Yeah, exactly. It was a great learning moment for me that there's no compromises. And and now I don't know, you know, I'm not going to say never. I don't know if I'll coach again. If the, the door I hope you do. Open. Well, thank you. I do. I, I hope you I, do. I think I have some more gas in the tank. So I can't do some of the things I used to do. And I missed that at Oregon because I got heavy and I'm old and, and relied on my assistants to do a lot of that. And I miss that. I miss being in the trenches in the batting cage, throwing, hitting fungos and, and doing that. And I, I think, like I said, with coach snow, that makes your players uh, more committed to you as the head coach and knowing that you would take a bullet for them and, and vice versa. And I, I miss that. I think you can accomplish it uh, different ways. And um, I, you know, if I had to do it over again, I think I made some compromises at the end of the trail in Oregon, you know, our trajectory, when we started, we were off of the first year, we then you got it going. I mean, you, you had good years yeah. there. You did. Well, we, we made the playoffs yeah. in a 40 game turnaround the second year, which uh, was amazing and, yes. a, and a fun ride. Yep. Then unfortunately we didn't make the playoffs in the third year. And then we were a national seed in four and five, and we were one run away from going to the college one series. So the trajectory was good. And then the staff changed a little bit and uh, we had some defections, unfortunately, it's a set of circumstances where I had made some compromises, maybe not working quite as hard as I used to in a lot of areas. And unfortunately it came back to bite me, you know? And so uh, my second guest there, there's some people at Oregon, Pat Kilkenny who hired me, Renee Baumgartner, who uh, was the SWAC there. Joe Jonsante was the associate AD and a guy named Phil Knight, uh, who invested so much to George Horton and his family over the years, but also the University of Oregon. My second guess is I wasn't able to get that program to the College World Series for those guys and the players that played for me. You know, there was a lot of things that we can hang our hat on. We were playing each and every year with four or five guys that had their degree in their hand and a lot of good stuff. But guess what? You're always measured as a coach. One of the, the main measurements do, do you win at the highest level? Unfortunately, yeah, but you, 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 you did. And, and you have like, I, I would trade you. You're, I would, I'll trade you right now for my 22 years of coaching for a year. <laughs> <You're, laughs> I will trade Thank you in a heartbeat. Um, you know, 38 year continuous member, you're going into the hall of fame. What, what does, you talked about it in the beginning. What does getting inducted into the ABCA hall of fame mean to you? Well, it wasn't a mission. It wasn't a goal. Uh, you know, I realized you know, when you see Augie get inducted as late as he did, part of that was he never paid his dues, I think. But, uh, you know, he wasn't a, a big ABCA dues contributor. He contributed in a lot of different ways. and uh, But uh, just seeing the names on that wall every time you go to the convention, I tell you a great story, but was the year that I was the head coach and we won the national championship. Well, guess what? I learned from those conventions. You know, I had that passion. I, I played for the greatest of great coaches, in my opinion, but I was that guy 
in my early years, I was in the front row uh, listening to John Sweenis and Bobo Braden and Skip Bertman and uh, Rod Dato and all the greats and taking notes and buying the videos. And that, you know, I'm looking into the young coaches that are listening to this, do that, you know, as much as you can be a, be a sponge of the greatest coaches out there. And then when they switched and, and the coach that won the national championship got to be the opening speaker. Well, I was the opening speaker in, in 2005 because my team won the national championship. And I look out and I look and, and Bobo Braden's in the first row and Skip Bertman's in the first row and they're taking notes from George Horton. Are you kidding me? Uh, I thought, I got chills when that, when that happened. And of course you get very nervous when you see your icons, your, your, your heroes are out there listening to you, trying to learn from you. Come on. And so um, there's so many people out there that are part of the ABC that had such a big impact on my life. Uh, you know, just listening to them talk at the banquets and, or in a clinic, not just competing against them that I think made me a better person and a better coach. So uh, the fact that I was, I missed four or five years of, in the early years of not being a member of the ABCA, I apologize to Dave Kylitz for that uh, many times. <laughs> Whatever I can give back to the ABCA, uh, they deserve it because they were, they made such a huge impact in my life. Come on. Here's a left-handed catcher from Downey high school. That's, been to five countries because of baseball i've met three presidents some of which are right there in that behind me there and that if you can see the pictures behind me uh there's regan and, and bush uh and a guy named kevin costner um and been to uh, 40 states five countries and met three presidents being a baseball coach are you kidding me uh, what a blessing my life's been because of the abca Coach, I appreciate it. Thank you for everything. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks for having me on. One of the best things about this job is getting to spend time with the best coaches in the game. Uh, I have so much respect for Coach Horton and the impact he's made on baseball. Uh, you look at what he's done as a head coach, as an assistant, uh, the guys that he coached with, uh, the players that he coached. Uh, you can just go down the list and look at uh, – you know, every place that he was at, uh, just won. Um, and that's what I think of when I think of Coach Horton is, is winning uh, and winning championships. Uh, huge show of gratitude to Coach Horton for coming on with me. This is Ryan Brownlee signing off for the American Baseball Coaches Association. Thanks, and leave it better for those behind you. Oh